from the uh, center. Welcome those in and also those that are streaming and some that will be watching my podcast a little later on. And uh, before we get to our message today, just want to let you know if you have not heard, uh, we got everything tallied up on our church conference last week. Very difficult to get an exact count uh, when we do part of that in a voice, voice vote kind of concept but using the best rule of thumb that we could, uh, taking, uh, assuming about 97, 98% of those active worshipers here are members and not guests. Uh, could probably safely say uh, recommendation one by the master planning group passed by about 95, 96%. And the uh, other recommendation, recommendation two from the transformation group, about 94% or so. So just overwhelming support. Thank you for taking part in that process to give us kind of some clear marching orders and directions of what we need to be working on over the next year. And uh, so we're looking forward to moving ahead and uh, that's the result of your church conference. So just glad that everyone was able to participate in that. Also wanna thank those two incredible committees, man, for almost a year of service and investment that they made uh, all those long evening meetings and all the different study processes and meetings of architects. Just thankful for those men and women that took that time away from their families to help us in such a sacrificial way to help serve our body of believers here at Oakland Heights Baptist Church. Are you thankful for people that serve on your behalf in that capacity? Just want to thank all of our committee members. Thank you so much. Uh, as you know, I'm a Western fan. And uh, what we're trying to somewhat do in this passage uh, message series is it's kind of like we're getting a, a covered wagon packed up. We don't know everything that we're going to face on the Oregon Trail heading out west or whatever direction it may be. But uh, we're, 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 we're trying to do our best in terms of preparation. And so just quickly, you can go ahead and be turning to the book of Exodus chapter 14, camp out there. And uh, you're going to need a little structure today in our notes. We have some vacationing folks in the office. And so all you have today is just a blank slate. So we'll, I'll try to help you as we walk through. But as you're turning there to the book of Exodus, finding something to write with and finding your outline sheet, because we know we want to take these, outline, these outlines with us in the wagon. Because we know that preparation is going to be such an important part of the process as we continue to move forward and are transformed, not just our church body, but everything from facilities to direction. There's so many things and so many moving pieces. And in doing so, preparation is such a key to us being able to have significance in this passage experience. Now, if you remember, uh, commitment was a very important part of our first week experience together. And we said commitment, if you remember, two very important prongs of that, commitment to leave our weakness behind. Whatever weaknesses that we have, we want to leave those behind. Things like wrong thinking, things like uh, when we think in terms of obstacles rather than opportunities, things about how, when we begin to focus on things we don't have rather than all the things that we do have, wrong thinking. We talked about commitment to each other. This journey is going to require that we all pitch in do our part, but have an immense commitment to each other. That person on the pew is the one on the journey that's going to be holding the rope for you when you need assistance. And so we've got to be able to have that kind of commitment to one another. We, we talked about trust. Trust is nothing more than each party in a relationship doing the right things over and over again. That's what trust is all about. Me doing what's right, you doing what's right, in that process, it builds this bond of trust. We also talked about commitment at the end of that message in a step-by-step -step faithfulness. Learning at times, even when this complete sea is not parted, all we can see is the next step and there's dry ground there and we're willing to follow the Lord. Even though we may not have the ultimate, ultimate outcome of the journey, we know that he's made a path at least for the next step for us. And that's kind of what we're doing in all this planning process. Well, you've given us the opportunity now to explore more options where we can gather more information so we can make the best spiritual decisions for our church, best biblical decisions for our church as we pray about what the Lord has for us in these next steps. So week one, 
we focused on commitment. The third week, uh, because we had a presentation in week two, but in, in our third week, we talked about this patient, this uh, practice of presence awareness, knowing that God was with us. And that's no small issue. That's one of the greatest of all the principles we've got to pack and take with us. Knowing God is aware uh, with us, presence awareness. We talked about knowing that he's near us was an important part. Visualizing God in terms, in our mind, that that brings comfort, but it also brings some restraint of sin in our life. How important that is. We talked about accessing nearness of God through our prayer life. How important the prayer part was. And then we said, part of this presence awareness is there should be something different about you and me outwardly. Our demeanor should be different in terms of confidence when we know that God is with us. That's an important picture as we portray what's going on internally in an external fashion. And then finally, we talked about the principle last week of how we handle problems. And we talked about this four or five little step process We're going to have challenges. We're going to have some unknown complications. We're going to have some problems along the way. It's inevitable. Anytime uh, a church body really goes on direction for the Lord and tries to accomplish anything, Satan is going to hurl everything he can in their direction. And so we know that there's going to be some challenges. And in doing so, we, we said we're going to rely on God. We're going to respect the opposition. We're not going to take the opponent lightly. We're going to reinforce our weak points. We're going to reassure people around us, and we're going to refuse to quit. That was kind of a little uh, formula that we put together last week in this principle. Now today, I want us to really spend all of our time on a principle that uh, is also extremely important. You know, tucked away in history is a name that you may, but most of you probably may not have ever heard. Almost in total obscurity, Gertrude Stein, American novelist, writer, and poet, died in 1946. She spent the last few years of her life living actually not in the States, but in France. And uh, she really... uh, for the most part, was not one of the most notable novelist, poet, writers in American history. In fact, for some of you, that's the first time you probably ever even heard of her name. But one thing that made her a little more, I guess, worldwide known was how she died. Her very recognition of that name, her death was really, in terms of a historical look, one of the most fascinating deaths ever recorded. Gloria, uh, I mean, Gertrude Stein, as she was traveling around France, became extremely ill and was taken very quickly to an American hospital there in France. And uh, quickly the doctors diagnosed her with cancer that was really advanced, in advanced stages. And so one of those American surgeons practicing in France said, let me do the surgery and see if I can at least give you, buy you some more time. And unfortunately, it was too late. Gertrude Stein died on the operating table July 27, 1946. But what was so amazing just prior to her death were her last words. History tells us that as medical professionals got around her, she began... Almost, they thought, at least initially, kind of babbling just some strange thoughts. But as they began to listen to her even more carefully, apparently she was trying to make sense of everything that was happening to her. The doctor had prepared her for how serious this surgery was, that she may not live through it, and she didn't. He was trying to kind of give her the true picture so she could make the best choices in the last few moments of her life. But just before they took her to surgery, she made a, or asked a very interesting question. She asked the people around her in the room, what is the answer? What is the answer? And as those medical professionals listened to that, they really didn't have an answer. And because there was no reply, Gertrude then asked a second question. She said, in that case, what is the question? What is the question? 
And you know, as we gather around God's word today, I think it's important for us to understand there are oftentimes no answers to the dilemmas that we face in life. I would suggest to you because many times we're asking the wrong questions. And that's what I want to speak to you out of from a heart of God's word today. You and I have got to come to the place that we're asking the right questions. In fact, the right question. When we face incurable disease, when we face a child walking through crisis or some kind of complicated legal problem or where money's not available for something in our household or for college or whatever it may be, whether we're dealing with a difficult relationship or a job problem, just as many of you and people over a 30-year span of ministry have shared all kinds of issues with me through these ministry years of things that we battle and things that we're trying to overcome, a set of natural questions seem to always surface. Just natural questions. And I didn't make them bad questions. Questions like, how did I get into this mess? And more importantly, how do I get out of it? Questions that naturally come like, how quickly can I get this problem solved and make it go away? I don't want to experience this anymore. Or questions that, why is this happening to me? Why has this happened to me? And these natural questions are probably not the best questions that you and I can ask. And as we prepare for the journey in this passage that we're walking through, helping us understand that part of that preparation is learning to ask the right questions. And today what I'm going to be suggesting to you and what God's word shows us in the historical canon of when people were called to do great feats for God, when they were able to successfully follow the model of our Lord and Savior himself and ask the right type of questions, they became, it was a much better approach. In fact, it's an entirely new way of looking at difficulties and it puts our challenges in a whole different context. It creates a whole new paradigm for you and for me in tough situations that we face in life. It's like turning floodlights on in a dark stadium. Everything begins to be illuminated. Now what I want us to start off doing today as we open up God's word is to write the principle that I wanna show you today. I want you to write it down. They'll project it for you so you can get every single word of it. The principle that I wanna introduce you today is this. You and I have got to be more concerned for God's glory than for our relief. You and I have got to be more concerned for God's glory in this passage and journey than for your and my relief, for our relief. In other words, God's glory has got to be elevated over the relief or our comfort and our comfort level. Now, with your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 14, I'm going to do something today that I almost never do. I'm going to take you on a kind of a parade of a number of different passages. I'm going to take you down three trails of passage. I'm going to take you, first of all, in the Exodus account, we know there was maybe no greater call of something extraordinary being accomplished than by a million and a half or two million Jewish freed slaves to make their way to a promised land that had been set aside by God himself for them. I mean, just for them to get to that promised land would be a miraculous thing, crossing a desert. People that now had no law, no order, people that have been in slavery and been indentured for 400 plus years, for them to follow the lead of one godly man would really be an extraordinary feat. And then to get to that promised land and be able to accomplish conquering it would be a whole nother miracle in itself. And then I'm gonna take you back to Nehemiah where we were last week. Another people of God's calling trying to accomplish a huge feat. And might I say a feat that had been tried recently before and was a total failure. Isn't that so often what happens to us in terms of discouragement? Somebody's tried something before and it didn't work. And immediately we have this negative connotation in our minds. Well, Nehemiah and the people in 586, as they were returning from this Babylonian exile, being faced with rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem was a monster task. I'm gonna take you there on a second trail. And then I'm gonna take you to the most important trail of all, 
I want to show you how the Lord Jesus portrayed this principle in his life. Now, I just remind you that this is so unusual for me because I'm the guy that took three and a half years to go through the book of John on Wednesdays. I mean, I'm a verse-by-verse, word-by-word kind of guy. But today, for us to see this principle fleshed out completely, I'm going to need you to do some fast turning. So get your fingers warmed up. Get the arthritis, crinkle them up a little bit. Get those fingers ready to move, and let's begin looking, first of all, in Exodus, and let's look in Exodus chapter number 14, and let's go back to that Red Sea experience, and we're just going to read a couple of of verses along the way. I want you to see, and you focus as I read, what questions, what are the God's people, what is their thinking process when it comes to the principle that we're looking at today, how do they see these challenges that they face? What's the context as they process them? As these problems that will come up, these challenges that will surface in the passage, how do they process? That's what we can grab a hold of today and have great application in our lives. Exodus chapter 14, beginning in verse 10, let's read. As Pharaoh approached, we remember this setup, if you will, God had positioned Um, almost two million people in a corner. Pharaoh's army on one side, a body of water that they seemingly had no way to cross on the other. God's children were pinned up. It was a tense moment. And the word of God says in Exodus 14, verses 10, 11, and 12, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. Now here's your key moment. How did they process this challenge. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Natural questions. What are we doing here? (laughs) You know, we would have been a lot safer. We had better food. If we just stayed, yeah, being a slave is not the ideal thing, but you know what? At least we were eking out an existence and a living. Natural questions began to unfold. Quickly, Turn a page or two, depending on the layout of your Bible, and look in Exodus 15. Exodus chapter 15, and look in verse 22. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 22. Then Moses, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went to the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water because it was bitter That is why the place was called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses that what are we to drink? Here they are again with these natural questions. Hey, we're thirsty. How did we get in this dilemma? How did we get in this mess? What in the world has led, why is this happening to us? Natural questions. Now quickly, Maybe for at least for me, just a page over Exodus, Exodus 16. It doesn't just start with the water, but there are other issues. Look in Exodus chapter 16. Look at how they face this next dilemma. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat, and we ate. We ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out here in the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. All the frustrations of sacrifice and the cost of moving forward. Just natural questions. Not bad questions. I mean, pretty logical to me if you hadn't eaten in several days to ask the leader that was supposed to be, I guess, 
That would be an expectation I would have of the leader to at least take us down one of these desert paths where we can gather some berries, where maybe there's an animal or two. Not that one or two animals is going to feed two million people. But what are we doing here? How do we get here? Why is this happening to us? Natural questions. Now leave the book of Exodus and let's go all the way over to the book of Deuteronomy. Hang in there. We're almost through with the first trail. Deuteronomy chapter number one and look in verse 22. Deuteronomy chapter number one. Stay with me now. Verse 22. Follow along. Then all of you, they get right up to the promised land. They make it all across this journey through the desert. They're ready to go in. We've got the spy account setting up for us. What's the best way, Moses, for us to go in? There could be enemies there that we may have to face. Listen to this incredible moment. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Then all of you came to me, Moses said, and said, let us send some men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report and the route that we're to take and the towns will come that we'll come to. The idea seemed good to me, he said. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left, they went up the, to the hill country. They came to the valley of Eshcol. They explored it, taking with them some of the fruit of the land. They brought it down to us and reported it's good land that the Lord of God has given us. Look in verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. You grumbled in the tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large and the walls up to the sky. We even saw the giants, the Anakites there. You see, the natural questions extended even a step further here, didn't it? God's got something against us. That's a natural question. We're in difficult days, and so what is it? God's punishing us. He's cursing us. He has something against us. And I would just suggest to you that a new way of thinking would not be for God's people in this particular moment. See, we have the opportunity to look back historically and pinpoint exactly some of the challenges they faced and things they did well and things that they did not do well. And I just wonder, just asking, if you'll turn with me to the book of Joshua and go to the second chapter, of all things, the words of a prostitute may give us some insight into the thinking that God really is all about in these challenging moments that you and I face, could it be Rahab may have part of the end of this trail and the answer for us? Of the right way to think. You remember these incredible dialogue, the spies go in, they, Shinio, they go through the gates, they're there in Jericho. It's an incredible moment. They're being hidden away by this prostitute, Rahab. Now they're caught up. The gates have closed. They're caught inside the city. They can't get out, at least initially. And Rahab comes to them and has this dialogue. Follow along with me in Joshua chapter number 2. And I'm just going to read just two or three verses here, beginning in verse number 8. Let's read together, beginning in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night... She went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that, the, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Wow. Word has begun to spread. Word has enveloped around these two million travelers of what, what God is taking them through. Keep reading verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Well, man, that was years before. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sahan and Og and the two kings, the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear because 
Everyone's courage failed because of you. For here it is, the Lord your God is God in heaven, above and on earth below. Just asking and wondering, what if a faithful people of God called to an enormous challenge, when they started sensing, feeling, and experiencing obstacles, problems, and challenges, what if it wasn't a normal set of natural questions? Well, we, we knew this wouldn't work. Well, we knew it was going to cost a lot. Well, why are we here? Well, let's go back. Let's move backward. What if we didn't ask natural questions? But what if we went in looking at this situation in a visual way, in a spiritual way, in a biblical way, with this perspective? What glory might be brought out of this moment in this body of believers, in this situation, for the Lord. For it's not about our comfort. It's not about us. But it's about taking action as God leads us to take it for His glory and His glory only. Quickly to the book of Nehemiah. Hang a right. If you get too far, if you get to Psalms, Brian Steele, you're too far if you get to the book of Psalms, okay? Nehemiah, and would you just quickly, we'll just look at a couple passages here for the sake of time. Nehemiah chapter 4. Last week we were looking a little bit at chapter 4. Let's go back there this week. Nehemiah chapter 4. And look in verse 10. They're building a wall. Things seem to be going okay. Opposition is formed. Sam Ballot, Tobiah, others causing some friction. But the people began to get tired. This is hard work. This is not something that's easy. It's not easily achieved. Look at what it says in Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm just going to read verse 10. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of our labors is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we, we just can't. We just, we just cannot rebuild the wall. Natural feelings and natural questions that begin to surface as you're making the passage. It's not going to be easy. It'll be sacrificially, sacrifice, commitment are needed. It's going to be costly. It's going to take everyone's best and then some. If you look in the next two verses... They also feel like, not only just physically exhausted, but the danger. It's too risky. There's, it's, there's too much at stake. Many of you know that Nehemiah did something pretty bold. He had each worker's family stationed right behind them in their tent. It would be like taking each person's family up. And in order to protect your wife and your children, the men at that wall, man, that's some motivation not to let those enemies come across that rubble. Their family was just a short distance behind them. But safety became a big issue. Look what it says in Nehemiah 4, 11 and 12. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and, and, and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Now listen to verse 12. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over. Can, I mean, can you hear it? Why is this... Why are we having to do this? Why, why is this happening to us? This is hard. We're tired. Verse 12 went on. Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Natural thinking, natural questions are not necessarily the best questions. Could it be just asking? If we go over to Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6, and scroll down to one verse, just as Rahab maybe gave us a little inkling into why it's so important for God's glory to be manifest 
and not our own comfort, not about us, but about him, why that's so important. Maybe, just maybe, Nehemiah 6 and verse 16 gives us a clue to some of the unfolding of the end of the trail that's so important to God. When all our enemies, when they heard about this, all their surrounding nations, do you see it? Were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. Wow. See, the next time you and I get overwhelmed, and folks, that's going to happen. This week, I tried to take just a couple days away. I rarely do that. But you know, we all get overwhelmed at times. I mean, things move too fast for us at times. The cost looks too great. The sacrifice seems to be far beyond anything we can do. And the first thing that happens in all of our lives, it's that natural man coming back and resurfacing. We begin to ask natural questions. Why me? Why now? How do I get out of this? What if the next time we're overwhelmed, rather than asking how can I get out of this mess, we ask this question. How can God somehow, some way, be glorified in this moment. Now finally, I want you to turn to John chapter 9. And you only have to turn just a couple more times. I want to show you how important this principle was to Jesus. We're going to fast forward to first century. We're going to move ahead a thousand years in time, or in Nehemiah's case, 550 years in time to the Lord Jesus himself. And I just want to show you this, just out of the book of John. As I mentioned earlier in our message today, a year and a half ago, we, we finished going through the book of John on Wednesday mornings in our more, more midweek uh, time. It was just a great inspirational time for us all. But maybe we just camp out here in John, John chapter 9 for just a moment. And uh, let's look at this same concept and how important it was to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at his teaching and what he said about not asking natural questions, but being focused on this principle of God getting the glory. In John chapter 9, you know, one of the first things that happened there in that chapter where the disciples uncovered an interesting need. It'd be like someone driving up at our benevolence ministry here getting out of a car, having a mask on, and one of our members saying, how can we help you today? And them seeing a real big need. The disciples uncovered a big need. It was a man that was blind. In John chapter 9, he wasn't, it wasn't just any typical blindness from an accident or some black powder that went off and filled his, wasn't apparently any kind of disease that caused that during his life. But the Bible says the man was blind since he was what? Since he was, he had been born that way evidently it was some kind of malady that occurred during his conception or at very birth. He just, there, there was some deformity there or some type of physical challenge there and the man could never see. And so the disciples asked the natural question, don't they? I mean, just the natural question. Look in John chapter nine and verse two. His disciples asking, now Rabbi or Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Just a natural question, uh, making the natural assumption, just like the children of Israel. Well, God's mad at us. He doesn't like us. He's cursed us. What have we done? Why is God doing this to us? Natural questions. And so they said, this man or his parents, who sinned? That this, 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 this man was born blind. And then the Lord Jesus, in stunning fashion, look at this in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. Now here it is. But this happens so that the works of God might be what? Might be displayed in him. Wrong question. Man's blind, so who sinned? Right question. Why in this man's blindness, no, how in this man's blindness could somehow, some way, God's glory be manifest? 
The Bible says that Jesus took some, some dirt, some mud, put it on his eyes, sent him away to wash himself, and then following that, he could see. Two chapters, John chapter 11, quickly. John chapter 11, one of the greatest in the book of John. Do you remember it? An urgent message. Message came to Jesus. Jesus, the one that maybe you're closer to outside of your family than anyone else on planet Earth, in the human perspective, Lazarus is very ill. The message came to Jesus. You remember it? Sisters, Mary and Martha sent this urgent message. Come quickly. Your friend, we think Jesus might have been there seven, eight, nine times in the house. Of, I think there's a big hammock in the backyard. I think that was one of Jesus' favorite places to have restoration. He had somebody to cook for him. He had people that loved on him and cared for him. It was just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, perfect location. Just a suburb of Jerusalem. Lazarus. But the Bible says something very interesting. Jesus said, my time's not yet come, but Jesus tarried. We remember that, don't we? And in John chapter 11, when Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany, you remember what the sisters, really out of frustration, you, you remember their statement, Lord, if you had just been here, our brother, what? He would not have died. Now you put your thinking caps on. Jesus did not think or lead people to ask natural questions. The Bible tells us that Jesus, John chapter 11, he saw things differently. Jesus said this, this sickness is not unto death. But, but, for the glory of God, the Son of God might be glorified through it. Wow. Quickly, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John chapter 12. Turn there to John chapter 12 with me. Jesus now goes in Jerusalem. By the way, who's with him? Not only some disciples, but old Lazarus. Four days dead. <laughs> he is alive, fully alive. Can you imagine? Many scholars suggest Jesus' triumphal entry was really something, but there was almost as much clamoring about Lazarus making him way out of that Jerusalem suburb, a man that quickly word spread. What? Word bringing glory to God and the power of God Himself through this miraculous resuscitation and this healing. Well, but when you come to John chapter 12, scroll down to verse 27. Jesus is going to make this very troubling entry. Troubling in the sense we see behind the scenes with all this hail him, Hosanna stuff going on. He, he knew he was coming into Jerusalem for the final time. This sacrifice of his life and his brokenness was about to unfold. He was going to be facing the next few days some of the most difficult days of his earthly life. And in John chapter number 12, verse 27, the Bible says, and I want you to see it. I, can't, I mean, it can't be laid out any simpler for us. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? What questions shall I ask about this scenario? These people that are saying, hail him, hail him, in just a few hours are going to be saying, nail him, nail him, and Jesus knows this. And so Jesus asks the logical question, what should I be asking? Some natural questions, Father, why am I having to go through this? Why me? But Jesus makes a monster statement. I want you to look at it carefully. Beginning in the middle of verse 27. Father, he says, should I say this? Save me from this hour? No. I was for this very reason. I came to this hour. Now look in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Jesus, this excruciating week of his life, 
didn't ask, how do I get out of this? Jesus' sole purpose and thought process was centered around this. How can God get the Lord? How can he be glorified? See, God's response to that down in verse 28, we didn't read down that far. Look at at the very end of verse 28. Now, isn't this exciting? A voice from heaven said, a voice from heaven said, and again I say, a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again and again. On your note sheet, write down something very important. Do you realize that God does not waste a single suffering? Our God does not waste a single solitary suffering. I just look around our sanctuary. Man, it's getting fuller and fuller. I'm so thankful for that. So thankful that you feel confident to come back, many of you, and worship with us in person. We'll continue to do all we can to keep safe and wear masks and distance and wash our hands and have, have soap back, back, back there for you and wipe or what, what, what. We're just glad you're here. Can you tell I'm glad you're here? Amen. If, 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 if you really think I'm glad you're here, will you raise your hand for me? Thanks for waking up a little bit. Man, this is just, um, it's incredible to know that God doesn't waste a single suffering. So you and I can with confidence ask in every challenge that we face, how can God be glorified through this? You see, if God leads us into a difficult or even what we think is an impossible spot, The Bible teaches us with confidence he will deliver us in his own time, in his own way, and for his name's sake. Just asking. Could it be as followers of Christ, that's what we made a commitment to do. We didn't make a commitment to have a life of leisure. We didn't follow Christ, or I hope we didn't, with the assumption, you know, that now my life is going to be so smooth sailing and so easy, and being a Christian will make, make things so much simpler for me. Oh, no, 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 no. Surely we came to the Lord Jesus out of our repentance and in a covenant of faith with him, trusting him for life ahead, doing all we can to move away from life of sin and to him, to Jesus alone for life ahead. Surely we came to him understanding that every day we were going to have to take up the cross. Surely we came to him knowing there would be some cost. Surely. So as you and I are called in the spiritual battle every single day of our life. And when challenging days and challenging situations envelop and unfold before us, we are placed with two options. Let's cover our Lord up with all kinds of natural questions. And by the way, let's burden the other passengers with all of that as well. Let's, let's not only suffer, but suffering loves misery and company. And so let's, let's do all we can to drag everyone down with that. Or we can ask the Jesus question. How can this moment bring glory to God himself. What a question. And maybe we need to learn that submissive prayer. What, as Jesus prayed it, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, Father. Glorify thy name. I've gotten more and more as I study God's word to notice a little literary technique. I think it's more often used in the Old Testament than the New. But as I have studied, and especially when I do my quiet time and my devotional, each and every day, I've gotten where I I really have come to appreciate this 
literary device that we know in the English language that's just called repetition. When the writer of a book or a passage writes something and then he either rephrases it exactly the same to draw more emphasis to it or it's slightly modified but it brings us back to the same point. Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, not to us, Lord, here it is again, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Not to you, not to us, not, not about us, but about you. Listen to Isaiah 48.10. God used that over the last two weeks in an amazing way in my life. See, I've refined you. Now look at that emphasis, I've refined you. He says that to me. I, I, I've refined you to, to me. Though not as silver, and here it is again. Do you see the repetition? I've tested you. I've refined you. I've tested you. And again, he's pointing the emphasis at us in the furnace of affliction. The Christian standard, maybe it's even more, it stands out more there. Look, I've refined you. Not as silver, I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. So often, we are on display. I mean, can you imagine? Do you think it made a difference? Come on. Do you think it made a difference for two million people as they stood at the threshold when those spies came back, 10 saying, well, there's, big, there's some big giant, boy, that's going to be a chore over there. That's going to cost us too much. We could get killed fighting those big guys. Do you think it would have made a difference? At that point, if Rahab's words if she had taken a microphone and somehow spoken as a person of this, a pagan of this land they were trying to conquer to say, we had heard you were coming, but now looking across this edge of the desert, I, I look out over two million people and knowing that I'm a pagan unlike you and your nationality, I just want you to know we've heard about your powerful God. We heard how he divided the sea. We've heard. Do you think it have made a difference? Do you think that two million, that group of two million people would have stood up and said, you know what, this may be challenging, but you know, maybe the journey is worthwhile. We have in Nehemiah a similar situation that could have gone either way. I mean, probably 50-50. People were discouraged. They were exhausted. Now their families were on the front line with them. It, it, I mean, man, things were getting costly. I mean, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. If my kids can't be safe, this is not a good thing. But Nehemiah 6 would have never been written if people wouldn't have stayed at the wall, stayed with the task. Sixteen days ago, I opened up my devotional for the day. I don't know if you believe in chance. Chance is defined as possibility of something happening just the possibility I don't know if you believe in fate developments the Bible the dictionary says developments beyond person's control something supernaturally happening I don't know if you believe in that or not but just a few days ago as I opened up my devotional guide here's what I was reading at 5 46 a.m. The writer says, I wonder how many Christian people are living dangerously near the enemy. People that have no close contact with God's work. No intimate, no real intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. And no real heart communion with their God. He says in it's as if they don't know they're so very near the enemy. 
And the symptoms of that are these. You begin to think upon a work of God and you say to yourself, it's too big. The days are too tough. The circumstances, too hard. And the pressure of evil is just too much to bear. I don't think we will ever make it. And so there begins a slow, steady stream of discouragement that begins to rank among God's people. Now wonder on this Lord's Day, as we stand at the very threshold of a great passage and calling that God's called us to, how many there are that are so near the enemy that need to have such a greater intimacy with the Lord Jesus to be able to at least sit within six feet of one that is there to support them and love them and nurture them and stand with them in the battle. We must pack in the wagon of our passage the understanding that it's not about our comfort but the task in front of us is really only about one thing. What will bring glory? How in this passage can glory for our God be brought before all of humanity to be able to see His greatness so that He may be exalted above all others? Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for these few moments in your word as we package up one principle after another, beginning with the commitment of our lives and moving now into this very important that this is not about, Lord, a successful passage, but a significant passage. Significance of touching the lives of others through the glory of your power and authority. So, Father, just as you've done time and time again in the power of your word, whittling down ranks at times to accomplish even something greater, we're trusting you. And, Father, I pray that there would be two very important developments that unfold. Number one, the rope holders that make this passage will be so close and united in unity because all we'll have is ourselves and a second thing the power of your might will be seen by all of those that have doubts and that your glory would be manifested in such a way that it might draw draw people unto you father we love you and we worship you and we trust you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.